Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Allison J. Snyder, a longtime construction attorney, arbitrator, and mediator based in Houston, Texas. Allison has over 35 years of experience as a construction attorney specializing in construction and commercial litigation, arbitration and mediation, construction contract negotiation and drafting, and the resolution of various construction claims and workouts. After 22 years at the law firm of Porter Hedges LLP, she recently went out on her own and will continue to focus on an ADR practice in the construction industry. She's a fellow in the American College of Construction Lawyers and the College of Commercial Arbitrators. She served as chair of the State Bar of Texas Construction Law Section and as chair of the Houston Bar Association ADR Section, among many other accolades. But I'm most excited to speak with Allison because she was recommended by a longtime listener who wrote the following. And you can't see Allison's face. I think she might blush, but you can't see it because it's podcast. But this is exactly what the longtime listener wrote. Allison is one of the absolute best construction lawyers in Texas, if not nationwide, and is a personal role model of mine. The first thing out of every single person's mouth when her name comes up invariably is, Allison is so smart. Her demeanor is very calm and thoughtful. She comes across so well and authoritative without ever having to appear to push for it. Accomplished, aggressive lawyers from all ages and backgrounds seem to just listen when she speaks. And with that intro, how could I not sign her up to interview? So thank you so much for joining me, Allison. I'm really glad you're here. You're very welcome, Joan. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start at the beginning. You've been a lawyer for a little while, but I'm wondering if you could just bring us back to that moment when you decided to become a lawyer and join our profession. Well, there were two, I guess, two primary moments. In middle school, I was exploring various careers and thoughts and having lots of conversations with my mom and dad about that. And my mother said she thought I would be a great lawyer and I should pursue that career path. Hmm. I promptly rejected that and went on to a number of other thoughts. And then really seriously after college, I got interested in the diplomatic corps and thought I would want to become part of the foreign service. I did apply to law school as sort of a backup, but my original plan was to go to work for the State Department. Hmm. And interestingly enough, after undergrad, I got the chance to work for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in D.C., and we were doing a project with the State Department. Long story short, I decided after that project was over that I really did not want to become part of the diplomatic corps. So I went to law school, followed the original backup plan, and that's how it happened. I love it. I love it. And it's a great reminder, I think, of something I hear from a lot of guests and think about a lot myself, which is when you get those early experiences, even before law school, the best thing you can do is learn that this is what you want to do for the rest of your life. A close second is to learn, I never want to do this again, or I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, because then you can find your true calling because sometimes things aren't exactly what we think they are. So it sounds like that moment had a lot of value, even though sort of in the moment, it may not have felt like success. It did have a lot of value. And as lawyers, when you go to law school, you have no clue what you want to do within the law. And there are so many things out there, Mm -hmm. so many areas of law, substantive areas, and so many types of practice. I just, I wish there were a way in law school to get more of a, of a real feel for what's out there, because there's not until you just get out and start experiencing it. I was very lucky in that I got to experience something that I enjoyed, and then I sort of moved on to where I found my real passion. Hmm. And let's talk a little bit about your area of practice that you sort of fell into or found, and that was construction law. So talk to me a little bit about, I want to make sure we talk about like what construction law is, because frankly, I'm not sure I could define it if a student asked me. But before we get there, how did you find your way to that practice? Well, when I was in school, I loved criminal law. And I thought what I really wanted to do was criminal defense. 
I ended up clerking for a law firm during law school, second and third year of law school, did both criminal defense work and family law. The family law was pretty much a pure custody type of focus. The two lawyers that I went to work for were superb trial lawyers, and they did both family and criminal, as I said. Both of them did both. And for the two years that I clerked, and then for three years as an associate, that's what I did. Hmm. Ultimately, along the third year or so, I decided that I thought I would really enjoy a civil commercial practice. Didn't have any clue what that was. (laughs) In part, I was dating a guy who became now my husband of 41 years, but I was dating him at the time and he was in a general civil firm doing civil litigation. Hmm. And it sounded fascinating. I love listening to the stories. So Ultimately, I went to interview with a firm doing a civil practice, and I moved over there. My initial caseload, I guess, if you will, was more business payment disputes and banking litigation. Sure. I did that for about six months, and one of the partners in that firm ended up with a case involving an owner and a contractor who had gotten into a massive dispute over a multifamily condo project in Houston. He needed help on the file. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it sounded interesting. It had all kinds of complicated mechanics liens issues, had no idea what an M&M lien was. Uh, Not even sure I wanted to know at the time. I just knew nothing about it. (laughs) I had no architectural or engineering background, no construction background to speak of, but the case was interesting. I had Hmm. tried a lot of cases in the family and criminal world because for my short three years as a lawyer, I had been in a firm where everything got tried and I was lucky enough to get a lot of court experience out of that. So we knew this case was likely to go to trial and I was in. So we that case actually lasted four years mm. from start to finish. Wow. And I loved it. I loved every aspect of it. I like we represented the contractor in that case. I liked the contractor world. At that point, I didn't know much about any of the other worlds, but we had subcontractors involved. The owner was a very unique type of individual who was what I would call an extremely picky owner who mm-hmm. the word reasonable standard of care was not something that was part of his vocabulary. <laughs> But we had many, many opportunities for me working with the client, working with witnesses, working with subcontractors who were subs doing a lot of the work that was an issue. The issue in that case had to do with defects or alleged defects in the work. There were subs who were not paid by the general who had filed liens. The general had not been paid by the owner for a variety of reasons, but part of it was the alleged defective work. And so I got immersed in all of those issues. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got there. Wow. As you know, many people love the construction industry for construction first. They go to construction management programs in the various schools across the country, come out with a construction management degree, thinking they'll go work for a construction company, end up going on to law school after some experience in the in the construction world. Other people are architects and engineers, and they decide they want to get into the the real construction legal world as opposed to just the design aspect of, of what their education brought them to. There are other people like me who had no background at all, who just fell into it as a lawyer and really took to it. So that's how I got there. I love it. What the other amazing part about your story is, in retrospect, those three years probably feel like the three first years in criminal law feel like a blip in a much longer legal career. But in the moment, that was 100% of your legal career. And it probably took some guts and some gusto to say, I started this, I got some experience, and it wasn't necessarily for me. So I'm going to try something else that sounds interesting. And We are, I think a lot of lawyers are risk averse. That's part of sort of (laughs) why we enter the profession and taking that little risk. And then the other great part about the story that I love is the fact that 
even though you didn't have substantive area experience, you had a lot of trial experience. And so the fact that you had that trial experience allowed you to raise your hand in that moment and say, I can take on this case. And I think sometimes people feel like they have to pick their substantive area, especially now that everything's so siloed from day one. And what I often tell people, and I'd be curious if this would be your advice as well, is focus on skill development because you can always learn a new area of law, but it's always important to have those experiences as early as possible that allow you to do that. Do you sort of see it the same way? Yeah, I agree with that generally. I think once you jump into this world of construction, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, there are things that you can do to really develop your skills in the industry. Hmm. But I think just developing good skills as a lawyer is really important. I also think in this world, there's sort of no room for shy people. Hmm. The contractor world and people come at this from the design side, the surety side, the owner side, the contractor side. Mine happened to be more heavy representation of the contractor side as I got my experience. But that also was helpful because as a young woman in the world of construction, not knowing the substantive area, all I had to go on really was the, I can do this Hmm. part. I can represent you. I can figure this out. Together, we can learn that you... I'll teach you the legal side. You teach me the construction side. Together, we'll make it clean. The best. And we'll get this done. And it, it, part of that was the attitude of the contractor. Because in the construction world, there is a lot of, there are lots of challenges. And part of it is that the design is not always up to par or not always complete. Part of it is the schedule is pushing everybody. Part of it is there are problems with materials from time to time, whether it's the quality of the material or the supply chain issues that people have had for decades, well before the most recent supply chain issues. Right. So I think there's always a challenge to getting it done, but the contractor is out there to accomplish this task and somehow together, they always pull together and find a way to do it. And I I just found that refreshing. Hmm. And there's also a pride in getting that done that is sort of contagious. And so I thought all of that was useful in sort of my upbringing in the industry. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of construction law for someone who's never thought about it or considered it. Obviously, there are people who have a construction background who want to do law, and for them, it may seem more obvious. But to somebody who's just listening as we sort of started of like, I don't even know what the world of potential law is out there. Talk to me a little bit about construction law at a higher level. What makes it unique? What are the kinds of clients or cases, ways of communicating, things like that? It is a unique area. It's a, I think, one of the things that makes it unique is that the lawyers who are in the construction world have generally come there over one of the ways that we talked about earlier, over through one of those routes. Sure. And when they get there, the myriad of issues is endless. Typically, these are disputes between an owner of a project and a contractor or between a contractor and a series of subcontractors, each of whom represents a particular trade in the industry, an electrician or a plumber or the drywall or the guy who does all of the exterior of a building. You've got all those people. You've got disputes with the design professionals, the architects and the engineers who design the project. You've got disputes with sometimes the surety. In many of these projects, there is a bonding company who issues a bond for either a contractor or a subcontractor to ensure that their work is going to be performed timely and properly, or to ensure that they pay the downstream party that they may buy material or supplies from Uh or get labor from. So there are all kinds of relationships in the industry. There are also lenders, you know, who lend to owners on these projects. Right. So one of those or many of those relationships can go awry in a project. There can also just be problems, Mother Nature herself. 
causes hurricanes or floods or tornadoes or fires or delays on a project that create problems for somebody. The contract, whether it is completely well negotiated and well thought out, or whether it's just a quick two-pager or whether it's just a verbal handshake, Mm -hmm. those contracts really determine the rights and obligations of the parties. Or in some cases, they don't determine them because nothing was, was written down. When something goes wrong, whether it is a problem with the construction, a problem with the design, or just delay in accomplishing the project, somebody bears the risk for that. And so the question is, who financially is going to bear the risk and and to what degree? Those are the kinds of issues that we deal with day in, day out. And then within the construction world, there are rights and obligations by common law and by statute that are given to those various parties that we've just discussed. Right. For example, mechanics lien laws are generally enacted in the various states in order to protect laborers and material men, people who provide the labor and material to actually build the project. Right. There are preferences built into law about who's going to carry the risk and who's going to bear that burden when something goes wrong. Those are the disputes that we're really we're focused on. Yeah. One of the things that I heard you saying, and it's really interesting to me, and what maybe makes this really unique is just the sheer number of parties or potential parties that are involved in any given challenge. I actually am looking out my window at my house right now, and there is a house going up that I've been watching go up as I sit from my desk. And I've been noticing, right? It's There are different people every day. There are different materials going up. What they were doing a month ago is very different than what they were doing this morning when I was preparing for this interview. Just the sheer number of parties may make this a really unique area of dealing with challenge and potential litigation and potential points of disagreement. Well, I think one of the fun parts of litigating in this area, whether it's litigation, arbitration, whatever the method is going to be of trying to resolve the dispute, one of the fun parts is you are dealing with all of those parties in these disputes. Hmm. The other thing you're dealing with is the type of project. You're looking at a residential project across the street. You could easily be doing that one day and the next day be doing a power plant right? or a school or a hotel or a hospital or a power line, you know, a wind power project, or a solar project, or marine project. I mean, the types of construction is endless. So as a young litigator, depending on who you represent and the types of clients, you're likely to be dealing with somebody who does commercial construction one day, somebody who does sustainable oil and gas pipeline work, renewables, or some kind of power plant type scenario. There are so many different types of projects and types of, I guess what I'm really trying to say is the kinds of issues that will arise out of those projects. Just it keeps you going. There's nothing boring about this world because you're always the next week or the next day, you're always onto something else. Hmm. You might be learning about foundation movement one day and how the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning in a hospital operates the next day. And how do you keep up with all of that, both in terms of just learning the industry and the law, but also the different clients and the different issues? We live in such a 24-7, 365 era of law practice. Like, How do you keep up with these varying demands of both knowledge management and client management? Well, the knowledge management you're going to learn case by case. There's no way that anyone can know all of that. Now, if you've done several soil heave cases over time, you're going to learn a whole lot more and know a whole lot more the second, third, and fourth time you do it than you did the first time. And eventually, depending on the particular issue in your case, you're going to have a lot of experience in that area and know maybe as much as your client does about it, but it's going to take a number of cases. Hmm. And the world of, it is complex and it's so vast 
the first time you're doing something, you're relying on your client, on the experts that you're hiring. So the mentoring is critical because you need to find a firm who specializes in the area, who's got the clients that can provide you with the varied experiences, and then the lawyers in the firm who are going to mentor you to help you learn the substance, also learn the industry, learn how payment works, learn how change orders work, learn how the relationships of the parties work, how those contracts are put together. One of the ways in which people see this the most is if you're in a practice that's both transactional and litigation. Mm -hmm. I had the great experience of working with a group of lawyers who both litigated these issues and negotiated and drafted contracts. So when I saw a provision in an owner contractor contract that dealt with liquidated damages, and in the case that I just liquidated, I mean, in the case I just litigated, one of the elements of damage was liquidated damages. And we know how we fought over whether that clause was enforceable. Hmm. The next time I go to draft that contract, I know a whole lot more about how to make that clause enforceable than I did the first time I saw one. I wouldn't know whether it's enforceable or not the first time around. Right. But litigating the same issues that you're drafting a contract on helps a lot. <laughs> I'm uh, sure. To give you a perspective. And having that ability, growing up in that kind of multifaceted learning experience gives you a lot of foundation to work with. And you talked a little bit about the importance of getting gaining experience. And then once you have that experience, being a good mentor and passing that experience on to the people you work with, are there, now that you've worked with more junior people just coming up in the industry, are there things that make those folks stand out as junior lawyers or people that you want to work with again, or think that person's going to be more successful because they did X. Obviously, there's no cheat codes to any of this, but I guess I'm curious if you've noticed any themes or mental models or practices for juniors that stand out in your field. I think somebody who's really willing to get immersed in the industry is probably primary. There are, as a young lawyer, there are a lot of things you can go do. There are bar activities you can do. There are conferences and CLEs you can do. But one of the things that I think is both fun and rewarding and also really challenging is to get out and network on your own with the various industry groups. There's the ABC, the Associated Builders and Contractors, or AGC, Associated General Contractors of America. There are a myriad of groups like that, be you involved in representing sureties or subcontractors or civil engineers, it's endless, but there are industry groups. All of them have associate memberships. Hmm. All of them allow uh, young lawyers to join. When you go to those groups, number one, you get to network with those people who could be prospective clients. Number two, they're teaching you, and I imagine very quickly you're going to be teaching them. They're always looking for people to give CLEs, to advise the group, to be a luncheon speaker on a legal topic. The give back is there and the give and take is there. And it's a lot of time. It's a lot of commitment, but Mm -hmm. it comes back to you in so many ways. When I left A month ago, when I left Porter Hedges after having been there 22 years, the firm was very gracious and pushed out a notice on LinkedIn. And I got so many responses, but it was really interesting. I got two responses from people in the industry that I had not talked to in 20 years. But they were, one was somebody I had worked with in one of those organizations The other was an engineer that had been an opposing expert in a case that I had litigated. Just out of the blue, reached out and said they were so happy to hear from me and about me, wished me all the success. And I never would. I mean, I haven't talked to those people in decades, but it was just really interesting and fun to, to see that people are out there. You make those relationships in so many different ways. 
and the payback is sort of out there and maybe not even visible to you sometimes. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the relationship between the lawyer and the client in your industry, because as you said, it's so, these people are real experts in what they do and how they do it. And they're working on tight margins and tight time. I would imagine sometimes the lawyer showing up isn't actually the thing they're particularly excited about. Talk to me a little bit about that lawyer-client relationship and that lawyer-client communication and maybe some tips and techniques that made it particularly effective in your time doing that work. Well, I think the lawyer showing up is one of the things they dread the most. <laughs> it doesn't surprise They're me at all. Absolutely not looking forward to it. But it comes in a, you know, in a variety of ways. I think lawyers who succeed and do the best in that world are people who are willing to give back to the client, whether it's a small company, a medium company, a multinational. It can be Joe Blow Drywall. It can be Exxon. The ability to get in and teach them something, take ownership of issues they have to deal with every day and help them figure out how to do it better or avoid risk better is something they will value and appreciate. It also teaches you their world. And you get to understand a little bit more about what they worry about, what keeps them up at night, and how you can affect some change there, help them with that. Hmm. In what we do, there are various ways to have impact. In a lawsuit, let's say you're, you know, you've got a brand new case and let's just call it a delay case for an example. So you're representing a contractor, the project was delayed. In the contract, there might be multiple types of damages that they are exposed to because they completed the project late. But they may have five different reasons over time as to why the project completed late. Maybe four of those five were not in their control at all. And the other one might be within their control, but really was not the main impact to causing this delay. So you're then sitting down to sort of slice and dice the chronology of events that happened over a three-year period and figure out why each delay happened, who caused it, what are the issues out in the real world that caused it, who are the witnesses in that company and for all the other companies that were involved in the project who you might need to go talk to. And then within the company that you represent, Who are the, what we call boots on the ground people that lived it every day out on the project site and that are going to be your best witnesses at trial to explain the delays and what happened? And hopefully you're dealing with a company where there is some sort of a written record. There are emails, there are change orders, there are text messages back and forth. There are letters back in the old days that used to be letters. Mm-hmm. There is all kinds of correspondence or communication between the parties about what happened. Sometimes, you know, there's there's not a lot of communication. So a lot of your case comes through the project superintendent or the project manager explaining what happened or why it happened, or the project superintendent for your company having dealt with the project superintendent for the subcontractor who you might be looking to to blame for some of these issues. So Hmm. part of dealing with those people is dealing with everybody from the CEO of the company to the CFO who's managing all of the financial issues involved in the case to the project manager who's overseeing this project and maybe 20 or 30 people in his company involved in the project to another 30 or 40 subcontractors on the job, some of whom might be directly to blame or at least involved in the issues in your case. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the people at the owner level who were involved in the case or the architect or the engineer that the parties were all dealing with. So there are a lot of people to manage and to get to know and to talk to whether it's an informal interview that you get to conduct or whether it's a 
deposition you're about to take and you're preparing for the deposition or defending your own client's deposition or taking the other side's expert on a given issue. There's a lot of people management and sort of Hmm. understanding the personalities that built this job. And some of them are not the best people in the world. I mean, sure. We're all people. Yeah, they're all, there's some jerks out there and you're going to deal with some of the best and some of the worst. Mm -hmm. It's just a fascinating part of the job. I think one of the other things that we get to do as transactional lawyers, it is hard to get people to document. And one of the most fun things is to go to a, let's say an owner or a contractor who's got a group managing projects to go to those people and sit up in front of them for an hour and talk about why do we need this clause? And why do you negotiate this clause? And here's a particular clause, a no damages for delay clause, for example, that says in the event of a delay on the job not caused by the contractor, the contractor might be able to get an extension of time to complete the job on the contract, to complete the job, but in no event will he ever be able to recover any kind of damages. Well, those are common clauses. Why do we try to negotiate for them if you're representing an owner or against them if you're representing a contractor? So explaining to those people in the company who negotiate those contracts, because not every company is going to hire a lawyer to negotiate the contracts. Right. Right. Why do you do that? Why is this a clause you want to be really careful of? So you're you're sort of teaching people in some part to do your job Mm. because they're just hundreds and thousands of instances that you'll run across where nobody hired you to do it. They did it themselves. And now you're stuck with you're litigating the contract that they negotiated. And sometimes there are lessons learned that come out of that experience. And client wants you to come out to the office and explain to their 30 project managers the 10 most important mistakes that can be made in negotiating a construction contract. Hmm. or the five most important clauses you want them to be careful about. Right. All the things that you want to avoid in litigation, you can do in advance, and it's still not going to put you out of business as a construction litigator because there's still going to be issues, as you said, that no one imagined or that people imagined and still dispute sort of the chronology or how they happened or who's on the hook. And it actually brings me to the other question I had about your practice, which is we talked a lot about the interface with the clients. I'm curious about your interface with the courts or with arbitrators or people who are making these decisions. What's unique or maybe what stands out in making arguments to those folks for people who are either not construction experts or if they are construction experts, they're not the level of expertise that you have about that particular contract and those particular parties. How do you think about switching your audience from client to court or uh, neutral? When you go to the courthouse on a construction case, you are going to be dealing with a judge and a jury that know almost nothing about the world you're talking about. There are judges who try construction cases, but there are not judges, by and large, who try a lot of them. Hmm. And many times the issues that you're going to be presenting to the court are are issues they don't know anything about. They may, if they've tried several construction cases, they may be beginning to develop an understanding of the basic world that you're talking about, but the chance that they're going to understand why the roof drain on the top of this hotel complex you got a $250 million hotel you just built and the roof drains are leaking, the chance that they're going to understand how they're built, how they're tied in, and why they're leaking and what kind of damage that will cause internally is nil. So as the lawyer presenting that case, no matter whether for the owner or the contractor, you're going to be presenting to somebody who knows a whole lot less than you do about how the industry operates or the technical issues involved. So it is really important to understand how to present your case. 
to know it well and to present it and to boil it down quickly and easily for them. I think one of the most sort of the most fun things to do in prepping for a trial is to sit down with, I used to do this when my kids were young. My kids were close in age, so I had one in eighth grade and one in 10th grade at the same time. And I would sit them down on the sofa and I would say, I'm going to tell you what this dispute is about. And in preparation for voir dire and a jury, I would sit them down and I would just do my introduction or I would do my opening or I would do my closing or I would tell them certain facts, little snippets and get their reaction. Hmm. All right, I've just told you what this case is about. What what are your thoughts? And they'd start peppering me with questions. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. And all of a sudden I realized, yeah, you're right. I've made assumptions about stuff I know that a lay person isn't going to know. But I think you can take anybody from a seventh grader on up, sit them on a sofa and talk to them and sort of figure out what you're going to be faced with when you go to court. And I don't mean to be demeaning the judge or the jury that they're not smart, but they're not schooled in the world that we're sort of immersed in. Hmm. So you need to figure out how do they perceive the information I've just imparted to them. Are you thinking about that story that you want to tell the court earlier on in the process? So when your client is telling you, here's what happened, here are the things that I did right, here are the things that maybe I didn't do so right. Are you thinking at that moment, how am I going to deal with this to this lay audience? Yeah, I think once you've tried a bunch of cases, you you are going to do that. Tell you a funny story. I I had a what I would call a marine bulkhead failure case. It also had elements of delay and fraud, a complex case, all sort of combined together. When I went out to visit the owner of the construction company. The very first time we met, we focused on the delay part of the case initially. And I asked him to tell me, tell me all the things that you finished this project almost a year late, cost millions of dollars between what it cost you, what it cost the owner. Tell me what happened. As he went through the chronology of events, there were everything from hurricanes to supply chain problems, to a flood, to all kinds of issues. Each one of those issues started, we could boil it down to a word. And each one of those words represented a whole story in and of itself about what happened on this project. We kind of used a word, and I'll just, by way of example, I'll give you the word harumph. That was when we added together all the letters of the words that we came up with, like H for hurricane. When we added together all those letters and we made this word harumph, that was our theme for the project. Mm. That was our theme for our case. Funny enough, as we get ready to go to trial, we sit down with that same man to get him prepared for his testimony. And we had him go through all these through the story and through the chronology. And he said to me, how am I ever going to remember all of these things that happen and the order in which you want me to spew them out to the jury? I said, it's really sinful. Remember Harumph? And he said, yeah, I do. We walked through what each of the letters stood for. Right. And he could sit up there on the witness stand and talk for an hour and not miss a beat hmm. because he had and, and so we developed a theme in our very first meeting that became our theme for the case and then eventually helped him tell his story to the jury. But yeah, you're always looking for a theme. Yeah, I love that. And it's funny, I just recently set in on an event with the Solicitor General of the United States, and she talks about the exact same thing that you talk about, which is when she goes up to the Supreme Court the night before she talks about basically giving the theme of her case to her young children at the dinner table. And that's her way of knowing like, yes, I'm ready. Even the highest court at the land in very complex cases 
and she's doing it at a very high level. So I think it sounds like that understanding that theme and translating it for someone that doesn't know is just such an important part of both her practice and your practice. It is an important part. It's also, it's funny when you talk about doing that with your kids, I think it's really important if you have a family, even if you don't have kids, to use them to sort of, you know, bounce ideas off of. Yes. Because they're going to understand what you're concerned about, what the themes are, what you're trying to say about what happened to your client or what your client did or why your client is right and should prevail in that dispute. It also helps them understand what you do, maybe even why you're passionate about what you do. And then Mm -hmm. I always found it was interesting when you get back home after a long case and your kids would come running up and want to know, well, what happened to Mr. Blah, blah, blah. Totally. And it's funny to this day, my kids still ask about a few select clients that they heard about for years, you know, because they just, they heard, they lived that case for so long through stories and they want to know, well, how's he doing or, do you still represent him or what kind of contact do you have with them or mm-hmm. whatever happened to that case? It is sort of, you bring in the whole family. <laughs> it's like being in the military. Yeah. You I, know, when you've got a kid in the military, the whole family's in the military. Well, it's sort of like that when you're a lawyer. Yeah. I love that. I grew up the son of a rabbi and that's also how we felt it was like the congregation's challenges were our family's challenges. And it was great to have somebody practice the sermon in front of me from a very young age. So I, I think that's really great advice. As we move toward the end of our just under an hour together, I want to talk about your new venture, your new move to do an ADR practice with a construction focus. Talk to me a little bit about sort of how that came about and where you see this new phase in your career. Well, it started uh, really in the mid 90s. Hmm. I was talked a lot about representing contractors. I also represented sureties and owners and subcontractors. And I had the opportunity to do a lot of surety work in the mid-90s, representing sureties when a contractor went under or got in trouble and the owner called on the surety to come in and complete the project. Out of that surety relationship grew a, a number of requests for me to mediate cases. So I started mediating and then pretty quickly after that, arbitrating over 25 years ago. The American Arbitration Association at the time had a panel of arbitrators that had been in place for many, many, many years. They were looking for new blood. I think they were looking for women. They were looking to diversify the panels. And I just happened to be in some measure in the right place at the right time. Hmm. I started getting on panels as an arbitrator, probably at a younger age than many people do. And certainly now, because now most of the arbitration providers, be it JAMS or CPR or AAA, they want people with 10, 15 years of experience in the industry. I got in on that early and have been doing it. And so I have loved dispute resolution at its core for a long, long time. I think the construction industry sort of as its foundational tenant has always been about getting the project done and moving on to the next project and not having the parties be mired in disputes that go on for years. And so part of that attitude of getting things done, getting the job built, was getting rid of the disputes that inevitably happen and having it done quickly. Hmm. hopefully efficiently and quietly. So arbitration and mediation is just part of that world. The construction contracts that we all deal with have long had arbitration clauses in them. So I have come to it over time and have enjoyed that aspect of it. I also think litigating cases alongside arbitrating cases as the arbitrator has made me a better litigator all the way through my career. I think litigating has also made me a better arbitrator. So I've hmm. I've enjoyed the interplay of all of those. I ultimately wanted to, two things happened that actually caused me to leave. One was I have had a lot of conflicts 
in the industry because the firm that I've been a part of for so long does a lot of energy work. So oil, gas, traditional energy sources, sure, downstream, midstream, and upstream, also wind and solar. And that also, because I do a lot of that work as an attorney representing clients in the construction world and also as an arbitrator, I began to just have a lot of conflicts every time I, I got a file in the door. So that was one thing that happened. Sure. The other thing that happened was I was just ready to cut back and simplify a little bit. And one thing that I thought mm-hmm. might help me do that was to get rid of the heavy duty litigation that I've been involved in for so long and sort of move more toward the ADR world. And my focal point has shifted. So I'm doing much more arbitration and mediation. That's fantastic. And hopefully maybe someday, assuming the podcast is still alive down the road, I can have you back on and we can hear about about that chapter in your fantastic career. We're getting towards the end of our time. So I want to finish with two questions. The first is, I'd love to hear a memory or a case or a scenario or a meeting, something that's memorable from your career. And I know you've done a lot and sort of what you learned or why that memory stands out. And then I'll end by asking my last question, which is just for a piece of advice for people just starting out. But any case, any moment really stand out as you look back on your 22 years uh, at your law firm? Oh, well, let me say this. I was at Porter Hedges for 22 years. And before that, I was at Greenberg Payton for 22 years. Wow. And then three years at the first firm that did the family and criminal work. Mm -hmm. So many experiences and many cases, but sure. one of my partners and I tried a case many, many years ago that was a contractor versus a subcontractor. And it was a breach of contract, but it was also a fraud case because we thought the contractor took on this subcontractor to do work for the contractor on three projects simultaneously. And the problems that occurred on the job occurred on all three projects simultaneously. And that was a massive amount of work for the general contractor. And because of the damage that was done to the general, it was sort of a bet the company case. The things that had happened to the general contractor had been life-threatening to the company. So it was a lot of work. It was long-term. And the piece of it that was a fraud case had to do with the fact that the subcontractor made representations about what they could do, when they could do it, and how they could do it to the general contractor, and then they couldn't live up to it. Mm -hmm. The hard part was proving that they knew they couldn't do it when they took it on. I did not have, as a young attorney at that time, I didn't have a whole lot of faith in that piece of the case. Hmm. And the lead partner on the file had the most faith in it. I mean, he knew it was a breach contract case, but he felt like he could prove it. And he felt like he knew how to go about proving it. And very methodically over a couple of years, I got to watch him go out, find the documents, Mm. depose the witnesses, back them into a corner one by one, try the case to a federal judge, and then read the opinion where that federal judge found the fraud. And I didn't have the faith at the time, and I watched it happen, and I then had the faith. And that just had all, it just always stuck with me. One of those sort of start to finish great mentorship opportunities. I love that story for so many reasons. My favorite part also is I feel like it's often the junior lawyer who reads the law and they're like, we can prove fraud or this is, I was a civil litigator and I remember people, junior lawyers would always say, we need to do this as a RICO case. And everybody would laugh like, there's no way we're going to win this case. But when the person who knows what they're doing has that faith and can work backwards and see the seven chess moves ahead, it really is masterful to watch. Yeah. And it's hard to keep all of that in mind because it's unfolding over years. Right, right, right. Not quickly, and you have to kind of think back, where were we three years ago mm-hmm. when we started this? But once you've watched it happen and watched somebody really methodically, I will give great credit to David Payton, the lead lawyer on that file, who taught me so much, but in that particular 
case, I thought just did a masterful job. Fantastic. I love that. Well, look, last question is the same one I always ask, and it's the summer. So we have a bunch of new lawyers joining us, hopefully taking the bar exam pretty soon. Probably they will have already taken it by the time I publish this episode. What's one thing either you wish you knew or you want to share with those folks just entering our profession? I have always thought that this practice can lead to some of the best relationships among people that you work with and for your clientele. I think enjoying the industry, I think getting to know people in the industry, going out and just sort of immersing yourself in the world and really diving in is the way to approach construction law. And I had people who pushed me out the door. When I did this, there were no women in construction, no women engineers, Mm -hmm. no, no women architects. If there were, they were few and far between. You'd go to a construction conference and there might be 500 people in the room and maybe 25 of them that were women. Wow. And they weren't speaking. They weren't in leadership. It was a different world. And I watch today as I walk into a conference and see 100 women or 150 women in the room and they're all in leadership roles and they're from their construction companies. The world has changed a lot, but it is still a world where you've got to go out and make your way. And not just within the law. I mean, everybody has to learn the law and learn the particular legal concepts that relate to your world. But in construction, going out and actually learning the construction world is really important. I think if you're going to dip your toe in the water, you need to just dive in and do it. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for taking the time to do this. Again, I wish you luck on your most recent pivot And I hope we can keep in touch in the future. So thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you very much. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 